The United States was once the gold standard when it came to having a thriving middle class and well-paid workers. But now we are seeing a decline in what was once the American dream. Rather, it seems the American dream has been outsourced. For example, in Canada, the chances of rising up the economic ladder is far greater than they are here in America. Canadians live longer, are ranked happier than Americans, and more of their population attend college. Not to mention all of their citizens have health care. While we continue to self-throne ourselves as the best country in the world, it appears the data would prove otherwise. Since the 1950s, we have seen a sharp decline in union membership and stagnated wages while corporations are making record-breaking profits year after year. But it does not seem that that success is trickling down to the rest of us. But how did we get to this point where other countries are far outpacing us in so many standards? And why is the working class not what it once was? Well, it has to do with years of attacks on the working class the influence of money in politics, and the lack of a working class movement like those of the 1900s. On this podcast, we're going to discuss what happened to the American dream and what can be done to bring it back. Hey everyone, welcome to the R Wisconsin Revolution podcast. My name is Andre Walton. I'm the Southeast Regional Organizer for R Wisconsin Revolution, and I'm joined with my co-host, Will Walter. How are you doing today, Will? I'm doing great, Andre, uh, as well as one can be doing in the midst of a global pandemic. Yes, I feel you there. But uh, so the reason why we're doing this podcast today is because recently we had a town hall really highlighting economic inequality in this country, and we want to further... Uh, continue that discussion here today and um, I think it's really important considering the times that we're in with the pandemic ongoing and how inequality has increased. Uh, We've seen that with billionaires increasing their wealth and their incomes. For example, our dear friend Jeff Bezos has increased his wealth by $113 billion. Uh, Elon Musk, kind of the tech genius, or at least the tech geniuses love him, increased his wealth by $154 billion. And our uh, our uh, cool friend at, at Facebook, J- Mark Zuckerberg, increased his wealth by $54 billion. So all this is going on while, you know, 12 million people have lost their employer-sponsored health care. Um, 29 million people are food insecure. 16 million people are collecting unemployment. And 73 million people lost work between March and December of 2020. So I think, you know, it's it's kind of ironic, the system that we live in. Like, normally it's the rich get richer and then the poor kind of stay where they are or the working class stay where they are. But in this case, we're seeing a situation where the rich are getting richer and the poor are actually getting poorer and they're losing wealth and they're losing all these things that kind of maintain their status in the midst of a pandemic. I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Well, the pandemic has been uh, kind of a, a perfect microcosm of the failures of Reaganomics and trickle down, uh, a trickle down economy. You know, we've seen since, since the 1980s, uh, year after year, the wealthy continue to get wealthier, and and like you said, the the poor have at least been uh, stabilized. Isn't the right word, uh, because uh, you know as inflation is is going up, the their dollar is worth less and less and less every year. 
Uh, so if they're not making more to kind of cover that, their buying power is uh, reduced still. Uh, but we have seen a massive transfer of wealth over the past 40 years from from the poor, the working class, into directly into the pockets of the rich. And then the pandemic comes along and you basically see 50 years of, of mass economic inequality uh, boiled down into into a 12-month time frame. And it's astounding it, to see it occurring in real time, the trillions and trillions of dollars that have directly funneled from the, the pockets of, of working class everyday Americans right into our one percenters, uh, not even one percenters, you know, the point ones, the point oh one percenters. Uh, the fact that these guys have been making billions and billions of dollars in in the worst economic downturn of, of the past hundred years is frankly remarkable to, to behold. And it's frankly, it's sad that um, that we can be witnessing this happening in real time and still have such a large percentage of the population that are either unwilling to do anything about it or unable to recognize the severity of, of the situation. And I'm kind of scared, uh, I kind of scared, I, I'm quite scared for uh, for what the future is going to hold if, if this kind of inequality continues. Uh, we'll take Jeff Bezos, for example, quite famously had $13 billion of, of uh, wealth generated within one day uh, earlier during the pandemic. I forgot the actual, uh, the exact date, uh, but it, it was the a Monday where Amazon stocks shot up and then his net worth was able to grow by $13 billion in one day. Now, $13 million is enough money for a person to not only live comfortably, but, but live a, an upper-class lifestyle for their entire life as well as likely their children's lives. But $13 billion in one day, that kind of money is astounding. And, and I, I'll always go back to this example because a lot of people don't seem to understand the law of exponential growth. Um, you know, one, one million seconds is what, about 11 days? One billion seconds is 31 years. So the, the difference between a million dollars, which is a lot of money, and a billion dollars, which is not just generational wealth, but generations upon generations upon generations of wealth, that kind of, of having that much money uh, hoarded by such a small subset of the population is incredibly detrimental to the health of a, of a strong functioning society. I mean, it... it... It's one of those situations that you wouldn't believe unless you actually experienced it. You know, if somebody was telling us this, say we're in a pretty, you know, let's say wealthy country and the wealth gap isn't as big. And if somebody told us this, you'll probably be like, there's no possible way that's even possible. That has to be a dystopian type of future or type of romantic story or something like that. It's just not realistic, but it's actually the real thing. And I, I want to go back to something you said a little bit earlier about how it started kind of in the 1980s, 40 years ago. And, you know, that was Reaganomics. But what I want to touch on there is that, you know, there's this, this kind of mindset on, I guess, the, the people who are kind of, you know, capitalists to their, to their uh, boots in their mindset that you know it's just the free market and that's the reason why things are the way this is and you know they just worked harder than everybody else but that's not actually true so back in the 1980s we actually seen a lot of key things happen to actually rig the rules in the favor of the elites so for example we seen massive deregulate 
deregulation uh, around that time. And that's when they started to basically gamble with people's money. Uh, we've seen a, a deregulation of Glass-Steagall, which meant that commercial banking can uh, basically bank with uh, loan banking. So that means they can gamble your money and, and kind of get away with it. And that's how we've seen the housing market crash in 2008. And we also seen deregulation when it comes to campaign finance reform. We've seen Buckley versus Vileo, and we've seen Citizens United, which essentially made campaign finance you know, non-existent campaign finance laws, non-existent. So we've kind of seen the perfect storm happen. We basically have this situation where they, they deregulated the perpetrators and also let them, you know, bribe the regulators so that they won't have any rules in effect. So, and obviously regular working class people don't have the money or resources to do these same things. So they had nothing to fight back with. So, the fact that some people think like, oh, it's just a free market and this is this is going to trickle down and help the rest of the, the, the country. I mean, all data would say otherwise, because we've seen stagnated wages. Uh, we've seen a destruction of unions. Uh, we see deregulation in in many sectors of the economy. And what we're seeing is what we got today is we have a perfect, per perfect storm well, in I, which billionaires can make. Um... Yeah, go ahead. On top of what you just said, which I think was spot on, I think one of the things that you also have to add to that to kind of, um, uh, you know, put a bow on, on the, the, the effectiveness, I guess, of, of the riches' war on the working class is their control of, of mass media. Uh, you don't need to be the officials, quote unquote if the officials are on your paycheck, right? Or uh, on your payroll, excuse me. Um, so they're not, while they weren't directly you know, doing a lot of the, uh, passing a lot of the legislation and, and rules and laws and whatnot that, that have uh, led to this dystopia we live in today. Because of the changes to campaign finance laws, they are the ones that are funding a lot of the campaigns for the people who will then write the legislation. Uh, if I'm, you know, it, it's, it's the old adage about uh, television journalists that it's multimillionaires being paid by multi-billionaires to tell hundred thousandaires why they need to hate on people with less than ten thousand dollars to their name, um, and when you own all of the means of information dissemination, you can control the narrative on why these issues exist and how you know it, you can kind of point out the uh, an incorrect solution to the issues, and if you can make that be the first thing, you know. Uh, uh, What's, what's the word I'm looking for? First impressions are, are a powerful uh, tool to, to use to manipulate. If, if you're the first one to get this information out and the first one to paint this narrative, uh, there's a lot of times that it'll just stick in people's minds. And so when you control the people who are giving out this information, you are able to use under the table, dirty, shady tactics to divide the population so that they don't have the means to fight back, like you said. Average everyday people do not have the money, the resources, the connections to fight against these multinational corporate conglomerates. Um, what we do have is the strength in our numbers, our unity, which was stronger in the past, but has been weakened because of the influence of mass media. Rather than talking to your neighbors and you know going out and, and hearing about what problems they may or may not have uh, for the for the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. The American population was glued to their television screen, being told individually what to think by 
the one almighty source, which was whatever the the national news publication that that they had in 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 their home at that time was. So the the rich and elite have been able to kind of pick at small wounds that never healed in America and and use those to to really create massive division and and infighting amongst the working class on issues that frankly shouldn't matter. Um, issues like uh, that we still see today, racism. Um, uh, discrimination against the LGBTQ community, uh, misogyny, um, xenophobia, a lot of these issues wouldn't be as as uh, impactful as they are if the elite weren't constantly hounding them into the minds of the scared and, and, and frankly terrified masses who see the world around them crumbling but aren't able to identify what is causing that. So in their fear, in their paranoia, they turn to that which they trust, their local news broadcaster. Uh, and if the local news broadcaster is telling them, well, all these bad things are happening because of minorities or because of, um, you know, the, the, the Democrats or because of uh, gay people in your community or because your schools are, the schools are indoctrinating your children, these people don't want to think. They want to be told what to think. They don't have the means or the energy to, to follow the, the problem to its root. Uh, they take that at face value, and now they have been turned against uh, the fe their fellow working class Americans who, in the end, most of these people want the same thing. They want what's best for their family, their friends, and their community. Uh, but instead, they've been turned into, into worker drones pounding the drums of capitalism for their, for their rich overlords. And uh, it's, it's really scary to think how this type of large-scale indoctrination can be defeated because, you know, the American propaganda machine has been firing at full force for the past 60 years. This is a lot of, uh, a lot of in-depth, hardwired uh, manipulation that, that would have to be overcame somehow. And, you know, I'm not a psychiatrist or a psychologist. I don't want to sit around and act like I, I can dive into the human psyche and, and fix these individuals, uh, quote-unquote. But you would think that a mass pandemic of this kind where where people are seeing their neighbors, their friends, their family, people in their community suffering would be enough to kind of question what they've been told this entire time. But uh, evidently you'd be wrong. We'll, we'll look at Texas in particular. Uh, they spent so long privatizing their entire energy grid at the behest of, uh, of the rich uh, corporate owners. And now it, it has failed uh, because a situation that wasn't predicted you know, a cold climate storm hitting Texas has occurred and uh, they they weren't ready for it. So rather than accept responsibility uh, or recognize the issues at fault and how they can better prepare for them going forward, they instead have to gaslight, continue gaslighting the people of Texas by saying, oh, this is the Green New Deal's fault. All of our wind turbines froze, blah, 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 despite the fact that 88% of Texas's power grid is, is uh, reliant on coal and oil. And you know, wind turbines all around the world in significantly colder climates than Texas work perfectly fine because they have winterized these these turbines. Uh, but the private companies didn't want to spend the extra couple of dollars basically getting an insurance plan, if you will, in case these uh, type of freak weather incidences occurred because that would cut into their bottom line. They don't they don't really care about the health and well-being of, of individuals. They, they care about profits, just like everything else in a capitalist society. So, uh, I mean, America is fundamentally broken, and if we're not able to do anything about this in the very, very near future, 
I, I really don't see a path forward that doesn't result in some kind of cataclysmic event. Exactly. And I think some of the points you hit on right there were spot on. I mean, we have a cultural division and it's it's not even actually a real division. It's a division that's kind of propped up it's by the manufacturing media. division. Yeah, exactly. And um, I mean, I, I say this all the time and and it's very true. The, the greatest con in American history was that poor white people were fighting for the slaves of rich white people. And, you know, they didn't have a better economic standing after fighting that war. And imagine what would have happened if, you know, those poor white people would have, you know, stood up with the with the black slaves and, and, you know, overthrew the white slave owners. I mean, you could have seen a true economic, <laughs> some true economic justice at that point. But my point in saying that is that we're, you know, obviously slavery is done now, but the same mentality continues today is it? in which is it done, Andre? it's done in the sense, obviously, there's not. Yeah, I mean, that is very true, but I'm 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 actually speaking as far as like an institutional like where it's mm -hmm. like if you're black, you are a slave. But that that same mentality and those same tactics continue today in which, you know, people are pitted against get against each other around cultural issues about, you know, gay rights, about uh Black Lives Matter. And at the same time, the elites and the wealthy are running out the back door with all the money. I mean, look at the tax cut that was passed just in 2017. And people are saying, hey, my economic standing went up after this, even though it didn't. So it's it, in the mainstream media is is a huge factor in that. And, it, and it's literally leading leading all of us to vote and work against our own interests. And that's not just a conservative situation. That's also a liberal situation because let's look at the 2020 uh, election in which Bernie Sanders was clearly the best candidate. He had the best policies that would help working class people and people voted against that, not because they thought Joe Biden was the best candidate, but because they thought Joe Biden can beat Donald Trump. And I would contest that Bernie was in a better position to beat Donald Trump. And in fact, he would have probably got more, you know, lower, um, lower seats as far as like Senate and House and state legislators because he actually excites people to go out to vote. Bernie would have and crushed if you Trump actually, in 16 too. Yeah, he would have crushed them. And if you actually look at the votes in 2020, Joe Biden only won by a difference of what I think it was like 43,000 votes. I mean, that's that's smaller than Hillary's margin. And, and, and obviously she still lost. So the reason why he won was because he won the core key states and that's that's why he won. But yeah, I mean, we're getting to this. College. Exactly. And we're getting to the situation where the American dream is dead. I mean, at, at one point you could work one job and you can provide for the whole family. Now we're at the point where if you work multiple jobs, you still might not even make ends meet and and you're in the situation and obviously that has a lot to do with you know we don't have a social safety net program and we don't have a lot of unionization and a lot of our manufacturing jobs have gone and shipped away so i mean for example if we had health care for all imagine how much americans would be saving because they don't have to worry about expensive health care costs and well, well i and, mean the american um, the american Medicare. dream oh sorry the american yeah i mean just essentially the american dream has been outsourced. I mean, if you look at other countries like Canada or, or or European countries that have these strong social safety net programs, they have more of an American dream than America does. Mm -hmm. Well, I think one thing too um, that 
that kind of is based on what you just touched on with uh, Medicare for all, the ability to, um, you know, if Americans didn't have to worry about their uh, the massive financial strain that, that their health insurance uh, takes on them. Another core issue that doesn't really get covered much in the Medicare for all discussion is the fact that people are tied to their employment or they lose their insurance makes them afraid to take the risks and otherwise, you know, shoot their shot, I guess, for lack of a better term, at the American dream. Uh, maybe you have some standard nine to five office job where you get pretty good insurance and, and you're afraid of your family losing that insurance. Uh, maybe you're a really talented baker or you're, you know, you've been passionate about music your whole life. You, you, you play guitar on the side or something. Uh, these type of people that could have taken that risk or taken that opportunity in the past and might have blown up and, and been able to live their dream career are afraid to do that now because if they lose or if they voluntarily leave, I should say, this soul-crushing, depressing, standard 9-to-5 office job that they have, they lose their insurance. And if you don't tie insurance to employment, it gives you the opportunity to spread your wings and take these risks that you otherwise may not have, which is, of course, why employers don't want you to do that. They want people to be to be beaten down and, and stuck and, and feel like they're, they're in between a rock and a hard place because then they're good little employees who show up to work every day and do their job, and they're not going to come ask for more money because they're worried if they do, they'll lose the already cushiony position they have or... They're they're un, they're scared to to uh, connect with other employees about potentially unionizing because if they do they know they'll be fired and and the moderate comfort that they currently are able to enjoy would be gone. It, it's it's like the the rich elite are using this slight amount of comfortability that many Americans have as a threat to them by saying like hey look at how much worse we could make it for you if you don't shut up and play our little game. Um, there, there's just, there's so many points to Medicare for all that would just open up an entire new world for, for such a large demographic of, of the American population that doesn't even get touched on most of the time simply because of the incredible economic effect it would have. Uh, and, and, you know, human beings, we were not, we didn't evolve to, to sit in an office for 10 hours a day typing on a computer, answering the phone, whatever. You got one life to live, right? Enjoy it. Spend it with your kids. You should be able to go have fun. You should be able to do this kind of stuff. I don't know why or how the rich elite somehow convinced the American working class that your job is your life. Your employment, your career is the only thing that matters, and anything outside of that is useless. Uh, it's astounding that people who... You look at Jeff Bezos, who famous, famously said that he makes about three major decisions a day every day. That's it. He does it in the morning so that he's done for the rest of the day. You're telling me this dude works 500 times harder than, than you know, the a random Amazon employee X? And 500 might be, frankly, an understatement when you consider the fact that he made $13 billion in one day. Um, this, this old adage of the CEO works so much harder is total total horseshit in every way, shape, and form. These guys with multiple, multiple yachts, with with dozens of, of McMansions spread out across the country, they aren't doing any of the work. They profit off of the labor of their employees, and the employees deserve to live a happy, healthy lifestyle as well. Um, one thing that's big for me in particular is, uh, is the four-hour work week. 
uh, we've seen it work in a number of European countries. Americans are 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 forced to work down to the bone, and and for some reason, a lot of us take pride in that. Oh, I worked 80 hours this week, as if that's something to to brag about. Like, no, dude, you're literally sell. Uh, the and a lot of these same people like to rip on. Um, my example will be women with OnlyFans accounts, for example, because it's so easy. You just post pictures of your body. You're selling your body. Okay, well, is that not what you're doing when you're working in a factory for 12 hours a day? You're literally selling your body <laughs> to the company so you can lug their shit around and, and they can make, you know, millions and millions of dollars off of your labor. It's the exact same thing. These people are just angry because others have found a way to do it more efficiently and effectively and they can't enjoy that same luxury. So rather than getting angry at the... Uh, at the woman who is using her skill set to her advantage, why aren't you getting angry at your capitalist overlord who is taking advantage of your skill set? It's it's mind-boggling how efficient, how efficient and effective the the rich and and powerful have 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 used their platform to convince uh, to convince the working class to fight amongst each other rather than uniting and fighting against their common enemy. Well, I think you touched on an extremely great point right there. Um, we have a mentality in this nation, and I think it's really summed up to capitalism, is that we live to work and not, you know, working to live. Mm -hmm. And that's the that's the whole problem right there. And I think you made a good point with, like, the OnlyFans. You know, we have these people who are finding a way who are working to live, and they're enjoying life. And these people who are, you know, living to work, they fucking hate their lives. <laughs> you know, they're working 80 hours a week or, you know, every two weeks or whatever you want to say. And they don't actually have time to actually enjoy, you know, from their labor. And that's the problem. And I think we have to change that mentality if we want to actually change the system. And, you know, I think we could have a revolution. Um, we could have people in the streets. But, yeah, we're, we're extremely bogged down from that healthcare care uh, situation, because how many people actually want to go out and strike if they're worried about losing their health care that literally supports? Let's say they have five kids, their wife and five kids. They're not going to want to go out because there's too much at risk. Yep. So we've created a perfect system to suppress any type of movement. And the ones who do go out and, you know, go and protest or strike or whatever, I mean, they probably don't have health care in the first place. That's why they're out there striking because they actually need it. by the mass media who are controlled by the same corporate oligarchs who are running these companies. Exactly. And I think what we have to do is figure out and get back to finding out what the American dream is. And I think we have to stay away from, I mean, you can have these conversations, but, you know, if people use these straw man arguments like communism, socialism, whatever, then we're not going to get anywhere. We have to figure out the core things that actually made America a, a working class nation, which actually was kind of the gold standard at one point. And I mean, I think, you know, having such things as Medicare for all, uh, a strong social safety net, uh, you know, free public tuition, these are all things that can actually have a boost to the working class because they wouldn't have that burden off their shoulders to actually take more risk and actually go out and be entrepreneurs and go out and be artists, you know, fulfill your passions. Why do you think so many of the entrepreneurs are people who who uh, don't have to, uh, you know, you, my example will be Elon Musk. Everybody wants to talk about how he's this great revolutionary entrepreneur. 
his parents were filthy rich. He didn't have to worry about, uh, you know, the second he graduates high school, going out and getting a job to support his family. He didn't have to do that. So he could afford to take these other risks. How many Musks or Bezoses or Gateses have wallowed away uh, as like a like a grocery store stacker or something because they needed the paycheck immediately. They couldn't actually flex their their mental fortitude and, and try some of these things. And the conservatives will always say, well, there's risk, risk reward. You got to take that risk. It's not a risk if you're if if failure results in you just crawling back to mommy and daddy and them giving you some cushiony job at their big time company. That's not a risk, dude. Are you kidding me? The risk is if you uh, take this effort and you put your entire life savings into it. And now that it's failed, you're homeless and with nowhere else to turn, you commit suicide or something. That is a risk. And, and the, the conservatives don't want to recognize that because nine out of 10 times, these are the people who have that strong protection from their family, their friends, their connections that they can afford to take these quote unquote risks because failure for them doesn't mean failure, a complete failure in life that they will have no other options. It simply means a minor setback. Yeah. And I think uh, we can't let the Democrats off the hook with this as well, because I mean, I think there's a difference between like the liberal base and the liberal politicians, but their solutions to pretty much everything is literally capitalist based solutions that don't actually fix what's, what's the core issue at, at, at stake. I mean, look at Joe Biden and Nancy Pelosi's solution. I think when the pandemic hit, instead of instituting or giving emergency health care to all people, she wanted to prop up Cobra, which is a private health care industry. Cobra like. is so incredibly expensive, too. To, to <laughs> exactly. casually joke about that is such a, a neoliberal establishment thing to do. Oh, just go on Cobra as if as if people have the kind of money to do that. It's it's absurd that that anyone would suggest that. But then again, this is the same woman who, you know, likes to go on television and brag about her multi $20,000 fridges, more expensive than most people's entire, you know, exactly. garage vehicle set. And, and people like Hillary Clinton will tell you to learn the code. Like, okay, no, this, this isn't working out. So yeah, I think we, what we we're, we're figuring out and what we're seeing is kind of a deterioration of the working class at the behest of, you know, wall street bankers and hedge fund managers and the reason why nothing is getting done about it is obviously because we have the politicians in bed with those same industries and those same wealthy people. And in order to actually fix this, I truly do believe we need um, a 1920s slash 1930s style approach when we had, you know, a labor movement, when we had, you know, endless protests in the streets. We had a third third party, the Socialist Party, which actually put pressure on FDR to actually institute socialist policies because he was afraid that it would end capitalism. And I think, you know, you know what you're doing uh, with MPP is definitely a great way. And I think what the squad is doing, trying to take over the Democratic Party from the inside is also a good approach. But I think we need all three approaches. We need protesting, inside pressure and outside pressure pressure in order to fix the system. That's something actually that I'd love to touch on too, Andre. So I'm very grateful that you mentioned that is that's something that really, really bugs me is uh, the infighting amongst the left uh, when we're such a weak's not the proper term, but we're so unorganized as, as, a, as a demographic of the population that uh, using our collective 
power against each other is just such a waste of, of time and energy that could go to valuable situations. Uh, with that being said, uh, think of it like a, like a, like you're fighting an actual physical battle, right? And the neoliberal establishment is the current power. They, they are the king, the monarch, whatever. They have their massive castle. If they're able to prepare their defenses, if they're able to fortify the castle from uh, only from an attacking army only on one side, they can pour all their resources into defending that one strategic point of attack. Uh, so let's say hypothetically that the Justice Democrats were the only uh, attempt to, to fight back against the neoliberal establishment. They could defend against uh, infighting within the party and put all the all their effort towards that. If MPP outside pressure was the only uh, true means of, of enacting change, they could put all their defenses against that. By fighting a multi-front war, you are forcing the defenses to be spread out significantly more thin than they would be if you put them all towards uh, defending one singular point. You will always be more effective in battle if you're able to attack the enemy from multiple fronts. And I think exactly like you said is that it needs to be done uh, within the party, it needs to be done outside the party, it needs to be done on the streets, and it needs to be done on the web. Because the the only thing that the, the working class still has is, is our unity and our strength in numbers. That's the only thing we can do. We've had our resources. We've had uh, our financial stability taken from us. We don't have the means to go up against these multinational corporate conglomerates 1v1. What we need to do is overwhelm them with our numbers. Otherwise, we are just going to continue down this fascist dystopian path that we find ourselves currently on. I think you're exactly right. And the, like you said, the only way to do it is with working class solidarity. And I mean, it's it's a tough it's a tough road. But I mean, I think ultimately that's the only way this system is going to get fixed. Uh, until then, I think we're going to see more of the same until, you know, the people rise up. And if it was easy, everyone would do it. We're not saying it's easy. Well, it's definitely not easy. Uh, look at what France is doing. They've been protesting for over a year, haven't they? Like, I mean, they're not joking around. It takes a long time to, to actually get change. It's, it's not going to be like a weekend protest and then, you know, you go back home and then you're like, oh, we did something. No, it, it takes sustained pressure on the establishment. And that's the only way you have to have that mentality. Uh, another way. thing I'd like to touch on briefly, too, is the importance of, you know, <laughs> We, we talked about Reaganomics and trickle-down uh, economics earlier. Building a grassroots movement is the exact same thing. You do not start from the top down. That You can't do that. You can't build a human pyramid with all the smallest people at the bottom, right? You need a strong functional base, a strong foundation from which you can build upon. And this starts at home. This starts in your local communities, in your towns, in, in, in your cities, in, in your state even, if you want to go a little bit larger from the get-go. But... These movements need to be starting with, you know, it, it takes one person, one voice to reach two, to reach 10, to reach 20. And all of a sudden, before you know it, you'll have this, this strong base prepared that you can reach out to the next city and to the next city and to the next city. Everyone has a role that they can be playing to help in this movement. And everyone needs to be doing that every single day because it's not going to get itself done. Power is never freely given. It must be taken. And the working class deserves the power of their economic labor. And if they don't, if they aren't willing to step up for it and fight for it, 
they will just continue having it stolen from them. Well said, well said. Well, uh, that was a great episode in my opinion. Um, do you have anything else you want to say before we close? Uh, I hope everybody can stay safe and healthy. Uh, obviously, the the pandemic doesn't show too many signs of slowing down at this point. Hopefully, vaccine distribution can become a little more effective now that we don't have a circus clown running it. But uh, I, uh, I, I'm not going to necessarily believe it until I see it. So everybody stay safe and healthy and uh, keep up the good fight. Most definitely. And also uh, pray and donate for those people in Texas. It's really rough down there. They're not used to the code. It's not like Wisconsin. So um, whatever you can donate or help out in whatever way you can, please uh, go and donate and try to help out uh, as best you can. So uh, thank you guys for joining the Our Wisconsin Revolution podcast. Uh, you guys have a great week and we will catch you later. Take it easy, everybody. So we say we always say the Black Panther Party that they can do anything they want to do. We might not be back. I might be in jail. I might be anywhere. But when I leave, you can remember I said with the last words I 